Welcome to another limited edition series from Gate Audio Productions. In this four-part podcast, we're bringing to you four conversations with expert panelists from our 2018 Behavioral Approaches for Diversity Conference, affectionately known as the BAD Conference. In these conversations, you'll hear new solutions from the behavioral sciences for making real progress on diversity and inclusion. The BAD Conference was co-hosted with the Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman Research Center, or BEAR, and we focused on the childhood roots of inequality, going beyond hashtags towards real change, bringing masculinity into the conversation, and how to move the needle on diversity. Gate Audio is produced by the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, or GATE as we call it, and I'm Sarah Kaplan, GATE's director. Our goal is to engage current and future leaders in rich conversations about inequalities in our society and how we might address them. And this conference and these conversations are part of that effort. Hundreds of people joined us at that conference, and now we're super pleased to bring it to the GATE Audio listening audience. As usual, if you want more information on GATE, go to gendereconomy.org. And now, on to the show. So I'm excited to transition us now into our first panel discussion of the day, which is called Roots of Inequality, Insights from Child Psychology and Education. This is a really important panel. We wanted to make sure to include it in the day because we have experts here on developmental psychology, childhood education, things that we don't usually hear about at the business school to talk to us about how the concept and reality of inequality and equality develop among children. Understanding the developmental underpinnings of these issues is so crucial in helping us work towards change. So the way that this will work is I'll introduce our moderator, Nam Kiwanuka, and Nam will introduce the panel. Nam is probably a familiar face to many of you in the room. She's a journalist, host, and producer. She's currently hosting the agenda in the summer um, on TVO. Nam is also a Much Music VJ. Um, So fellow Canadians who are in the room, you might recognize Nam from pretty much the best show of all time, Electric Circus. (laughs) Do you recognize Nam? Yeah, yeah, right, see? I still have the glitter from then. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of glitter. (laughs) So we're very happy to have her here to guide us through this very important uh, conversation on the roots of inequality. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, good morning. Hi, I'm sorry I'm kind of out of breath because I mismanaged my time this morning. I went to work and then the TTC decided to slow me down a little bit. Um, So I'm very excited to be here to speak to all of you. Um, So maybe what I'll do is I'll get each of the panelists to introduce themselves, uh, where they're from, um, and a little bit about what the research that they do. Uh, and if we can keep that a little tight, because I have a lot of questions to get to, and hopefully at the end, if we miss anything, we can always add it. Um, so Andre, maybe we'll start with you at the very end. Sure. So, this is just introductions, or also? Introductions, where, you're, uh, where you work, and a little bit about the research that you do. I think this is your five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Less than five, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, So I'm Andre Simpian. Um, I'm an associate professor of uh, psychology at New York University. Um, I'm a developmental psychologist, hence my being here on the panel. Um, And uh, some of the work that I've done recently pertains to the reasons why women might be underrepresented in um, science and technology and engineering fields. Um, And there's a really good empirical case to be made for the relevance of developmental psychology to um, issues of underrepresentation in science and, and beyond. Um, just to give you 
um, a flavor for the kinds of arguments that can be made empirically. If you look at the percentage of um, PhDs in science fields who are women, and then you compare that to percentage of bachelors uh, in science who are women, and then you compare that to the percentage of girls in high school who intend to major in, in, in science, you see that those numbers are actually comparable um, and equally low. So the, the kinds of factors that seem to um, turn young women away from science seem to be um, having most of their effects early on in life. By the time that girls get to high school, their intentions of majoring in science fields is already um, about as low as it's going to get, and that then just gets sort of propagated through the system. So what happens early on that um, that makes girls not aspire to careers in, um, in science as much as boys aspire to careers in science. Here, um, there are many ways of thinking about this. Um, one is um, the, the sort of uh, model that Alice proposed, the stereotyping congruity. There are many ways in which we think about scientists and many ways with, in which we think about um, young women um, and girls that are just incompatible. Uh, this is um, work by Amanda Diegman, for example, that suggests that we think of scientists as um, loners are spending a lot of time on their own in front of the microscope and you know in a, a white lab coat and working to satisfy their curiosity so for sort of more selfish purposes and and girls in our society are socialized to think of themselves as more communal and more altruistic which creates a, a in, um, incompatibility between how girls think of themselves and how uh, we as a society think of scientists um, the work that I've done more directly pertains to another dimension of incompatibility, which is um, that we often think of scientists as being sort of innately um, brilliant, gifted at what they do. Um, and um, unfortunately, well into the 21st century, we still don't think of girls and women um, in the same way. So um, some of the work that we've done with adults suggests that actually if you ask people across uh, fields in academia, what they believe is required for success. The more people in a field believe that you need to have some sort of innate ability to succeed in that field, the fewer women are uh, represented at the PhD and bachelor's levels in that field, and the fewer African Americans, the commonality there being that uh, both of these groups, as well as um, others, are stereotyped as not being as innately um, gifted as uh, white men are. And you might think in light of Alice's talk, well, why are we talking about competence differences? The story is actually more complicated to suggest, although we might think of women as um, competent, we often think of women as competent by virtue of having worked hard at their competence, by virtue of having been educated, by virtue of having sort of like a nurtured um, and perhaps compensated for a lack of innate ability that we, uh, we attribute to men. Uh, we still stereotype men as being more innately intellectually gifted than women. Um, Andre, so, sorry to cut you off. Um, I'm hoping to touch more on uh, what you're talking about, but we're just running out of time. I'm just keeping an eye on the time. So if we could move over to Christia, please. Um, so I'm Christia Spears-Brown. I'm a professor of also developmental psychology. Um, I'm at the University of Kentucky. And I study gender stereotypes in kids and their understanding of discrimination. And most recently, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, sexual harassment and gender-based bullying. So one of the things we're really interested in is how early adolescents, so we're talking 12, 13, 14-year-old adolescents, enforce gender norms among one another. And one of the most important gender norms that they're often really starting to endorse by the time they're about 12 and 13 is this idea of sexualized gender stereotypes is the label that we give it. 
It's this idea that girls should be sexualized really at all times um, and should be sexually appealing for the attention of boys and should be happy um, to get that. And the flip side of that is that boys should be aggressively and assertively um, pursuing girls as sexual objects. Um, and so what's interesting about that is girls are saying that they are often aspiring to be sexualized, but at the same time, they're stereotyping sexualized girls as less competent, so as less smart, less kind, less athletic. So on the one hand, they're saying, um, she's less smart, but on the other hand, they're saying, but I aspire to look like that because it comes with its status. And boys, we know, are saying that they are wanting to pursue girls as sexual objects, um, and if they don't do that, there's a lot of gender policing that happens. And if that sounds heteronormative, it's very heteronormative. And so that boys that do anything mildly atypical beyond this really strict gender stereotype of kind of uber-masculine um, stereotype, they get then called homophobic slurs by their peers in middle school. So boys are also in this double bind of there's pressure to be hyper-masculine, and what that means is um, sexually harassing and objectifying girls, and if they don't, then they're policed by their male peers. So again, I talked about this for quite some time now, and this week it's you know more and more relevant. You see this play out if you pay attention to American news. Sorry, not to interrupt you. We're going to get into that. <laughs> um, maybe you can just move to uh, Juan, and then we can start our conversation. Hi everyone, I'm the Superintendent of Equity, Anti-Racism, and Anti-Oppression for Toronto District School Board. Um, the, I know you've been uh, hearing a lot about the behavioral approaches, and I think maybe what I can add to it is a part of the work that I'm doing is to analyze and understand the impact of systems and structures. So a lot of times when we talk about beliefs and attitudes, we think that um, that's the one thing that we have to deal with, and we don't uh, analyze that at the same time with the corresponding systems and structures. And so as uh, we're seated here, and I'm sure you did a land acknowledgement, I want to begin from, from acknowledging the land that we're on, especially today being Orange Shirt Day, and the legacy that has existed on Turtle Island and this part of Turtle Island. The thing that uh, I think that we have to think about as we're looking at, at behaviors is to remember that through colonization, systems and structures were created explicitly to privilege some people. And so when legislation was created, when structures were created, they were created at a time where they believed that um, in particular, for example, indigenous people were uncivilized. They needed to be civilized. In order to do that, they had to be taken off the land send into residential schools, that women were inferior, that people with disabilities were inferior, that 2SLGBT identifying people were deviant. All of these things were coded into law, and all of these laws influence the systems and structures that we navigate. And so when we talk about uh, things like the heteronormative views that might exist, and the larger sort of pieces around mindset, those mindsets aren't just mindsets that people have, they're upheld by actual systems and structures. And so when we think about it, the, the notion of neutrality or fairness or objectivity is actually a skewed one. So one of the things that I work with and, and 
um, with educators to understand is there is no such thing as neutral. That in our work, we have to actually adopt an anti-oppressive stance, which begins by thinking about who we are in relation to who we're serving, and what types of beliefs and attitudes transcend the spaces that we are, just by virtue of the way structures have been created. They ha as, as, a, as a man with male privilege, I don't have to think about, for example, what I wear when I stand up in front of a group of people or at the end of the night if an event ends, which route that I'm going to take home or how I'm getting to the parking lot. Those are things that are realities for women that often men don't have to navigate. Um, that is by virtue of all those pieces in particular, and, and, and not we look down south all the time, but in this country, um, as well, that you know, black people were seen as an economic resource for the people who were in power. Um, and that is where the roots of racism lie. All of these things were built into the legislation and built into the structures. So even though you might see yourself as a nice person, and I'm not doubting that everybody in here are nice people, if we are not actively doing the work to deconstruct the fact that we are products of these structures, then we unwittingly perpetuate those things in spite of. And so one of the things I try to remind people is even though we share the same world, we do not share the same experiences of the world. Thank you very much to all the panelists. So what I've tried to do is incorporate some of your research uh, throughout the different questions that I'm going to be asking. Um, and if I pose a question to you individually, uh, feel free to jump in um, if anyone else has anything to add. So Christia, you brought up what's been happening in the States uh, with uh, the Brett Kavanaugh uh, testimony uh, hearing yesterday, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. I'm sure all of us were watching it, streaming it. Um, seeing what's happening down there. Um, and I remember when I was younger, I was maybe around 14 or 15 when Anita Hill um, testified, um, but it was only on television. And now this conversation seems to be like, this, this seems to be a tipping point. But for boys and girls, especially those that are in their teens watching this, um, what is this moment telling them about who they are and what is expected of them? Christia, if I could pose that to you first. Well, say we have a lot of data that that answers that to a degree. That I mean, we know that girls are underreporting things like sexual harassment and sexual assault. So, 90% of girls, our data shows, by adolescents have experienced sexual harassment. We know by the time they become college age, one in four to one in five, depending on the the study, shows they've been the target of sexual assault. And we know that what their most common response is is they smile and try to not let it get to them. So they have higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, somatic symptoms, so like headaches and stomach aches. They want to miss school. They have a hard time sleeping. And this is just sexual harassment that happens in like the hallways. So we're not even talking about sexual assault like this case that's on television now. Um, and so we know that they are trying to not show that it bothers them. They're not reporting it to people, and yet they're really internalizing a lot of negative symptoms. So the really ch challenging part for for those of us that study this to watch what's going on on TV is that we know that girls don't want to report this. And the best case scenario, they don't want to report it because they're afraid of rocking the boat because we've been taught to be passive and people pleasing and affiliative and communal all along. And so really what's discouraging is that the message is don't report it because if you do, you're going to be criticized, you're going to have to go into hiding, you're going to receive death threats. Um, it's basically 
reinforce the idea that if you report it, if you speak up, you're going to be penalized for it. So it's really a, not an optimistic moment right now. And particularly if he gets confirmed, it's going to really say, you reporting it not only will hurt you, but it will also not lead to any repercussions for the, um, the attacker either. So I think it's a really pivotal moment to see what's going to be the consequence of this. And again, you mentioned it, we're talking about heteronormative um, yes. situations. So that's what's happening with girls. But what about boys who are watching this happen? Well, I think, the, I mean, it is really challenging for boys because a lot of boys, I think, are wanting to be good allies and are wanting to stand up and fight this, but there's so much gender policing that then it gets turned on them if they do speak up. So we know that about half of boys get called homophobic slurs in middle school, for example. So if they don't do anything that approaches kind of the Brett Kavanaugh-like behavior, they are often getting penalized as well. And so Partly it's boys have to figure out how to change their norms and figure out how can we speak up to stop this when we're seeing this happening. So we're not the boys in the corner that are egging it on. Um, I think the fact that this, that this happened when they were adolescents is really telling. And I do think teenagers are paying a lot of attention. Um, who do you think should be talking to teenagers about this right now? Is it educators? Is it parents? And if everybody. so, like, what do you say? I think everybody needs to be talking to them. Because we see it in media, we see it in schools. Teachers often don't deal with these things that are happening. So most of, a lot of this stuff goes on during schools. But teachers are just um, typically separating boys and girls out. And they don't want to actually address it head on. So I think it has to be done with teachers, principals, parents, media. We've spent a long time in this culture reinforcing these gendered norms. So it's going to take it from all fronts to start to change some of these patterns of behavior. Jiwon, you, you work for the TDSB. Um, uh, Christia said that teachers don't want to talk about this. Uh, is there a reason why they would be reluctant to approach this? Um, I, I, I'd maybe say in the context of our board that we are trying to have those conversations. Um, and in fact, a big part of what we're doing is uh, even thinking about how we frame conversations about boys and girls in the context of only being binary conversations. Because what our data is telling us is that non-binary and trans-identifying children are even in, in, being harmed more in the conversations, even well-intentioned, about boys and girls. Um, the, the other thing um, that I think is, is significant for us to think about is how how we think about the other. So a part of the conversation that we need to have around this is that often when we talk about who is the most marginalized, we are unconsciously talking about something or someone who is the norm and everything else is the other. So often, for example, when we take into, when we have conversations, for example, about institutional approaches around well-being, they never, for example, take into account things like microaggressions that women or racialized or indigenous people have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, things like, you know, um, I, I show up somewhere, for example, and have someone ask me, are you here to fix my computer? Um, for some of you, you know that that's actually not a surprising thing. Um, when, I had, when I went for my job interview, my hair is really long and curly, having to cut it before my interview and all the politics around here. 
if we did the part of the conversation in terms of when we're doing this is who gets to define the conversation and how that conversation is being had. And often it is what we're doing is objectifying indigenous, racialized people, women. Um, what do you mean by that? I find that very interesting. So, so research often tends to happen where we're viewing them as the other and we're coming with the informed research in a very sort of quote unquote objective way without thinking about. So for example, in our organization, one of the things that we've said to, um, you know, we have approximately 600 schools and 37,000 employees in our organization. We have said that every school site must have three goals. One is an achievement goal, one is a well-being goal that must have an equity embedded focus. And the third is an equity goal, but the equity goal must be about the adult learning that is necessary in relation to the children that we are serving. Because if we don't start this conversation with who we are in relation to who we're serving, we will always think that conversations about success are neutral, about best hires are neutral, um, about the best decisions are neutral, without understanding that we're bringing lived experiences into that. And so if, and, and part of the hard thing of this conversation is that often, because we largely see ourselves as nice people, as good people, um, as decent people, we believe that we understand equity. And, and the challenge with that is equity is actually a very meticulous field of study. You can get your PhD in equity, but because I'm a nice person, I think I know equity. And so therefore, because I'm nice, I'm equitable. And what we unwittingly end up doing is creating workspaces and situations that are actually toxic and damaging. And it's often left on the people, women, uh, marginalized people, 2S LGBT people, um, right now with the rise of white supremacy, Muslims and Jews, to have to do the work of trying to, so I talk about it in the stuff that I write as the burden of the oppressed. We have to bear the pain of the oppression. We have to convince people that the oppression exists. We have to be nice about how we convince them because we have to take the feelings of the people who are harming us into consideration. And then we have to come up with the solutions to the harm that's happening because when we bring it up, they're like, so what's the solution? You do it for us. It sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. <clears throat> I notice um, a lot of uh, corporations, even at TVO, uh, they have diversity training, inclusion, I don't, whatever you want to call it, inclusive uh, training. Um, do you think that's a positive thing? Or I guess more importantly, what do leaders need to think about when they're addressing inclusion? Um, I, so <laughs> uh, diversity is what is. And I think if we start from that point, we can begin to trouble things. Uh, sometimes when I talk to people who say, well, at, at my site, there's no diversity. Often that's code for there's no racialized people in that space. But the thing that I always try to, to blow up, um, and I'm, I'm mindful being Muslim and saying blowing up <laughs> stuff, um, but the thing that I try to blow up is that there is no such thing as a homogenous space because there are elements of identity that we cannot see. And so when we think about diversity as broad, 
um, moving beyond what we call the saris and samosas thing. Oh, everybody dress up and bring your food and yay diversity. I know what, you know, I know what samosas are now. Yay, that's great. Or chai tea. Yeah, or chai. Yeah, chai, no, well, yeah, chai tea exactly, tea. <laughs> you know. Um, I, I know about kimchi. Ooh, look at me, right? The, the challenge with that approach is that it, it, um, it minimizes the actual structural pieces and our own complicit ways that we uphold those norms. And so what we're trying to do um, in our organization, this is the work that I lead, is to um, take on an anti-oppressive approach. So an anti-oppressive approach, what that means is that we understand that systems and structures drive practice and they are artifacts of values and attitudes. So when we say things like, this is how it's always been done, or these are the rules, or this is the way we must do it, we are actually upholding structures that have upheld some people and not others. And so we have to begin now by figuring out who are we serving and centering who has been most traditionally marginalized in those spaces with the understanding that what is necessary for some is actually good for all. We're not trying to take away things from people. We're actually recognizing that when we support more girls to go into STEM and STEAM, for example, that actually we will, we'll all do better. And so one of the ways that we've shifted as an organization is that we've begun to talk about equity as a leadership competency and to shift all of our hiring processes to reflect equity as a leadership competency where we begin to look at the identities, the abilities, and the lived experiences of people as assets. Here's a quick example. If somebody comes to us and they might be a refugee, they may not have all of the quote-unquote Canadian experience in the world. But what else do they have that they're bringing to the organization to the space that is different in terms of who they are that will actually help move the organization further? So when we talk about we're hiring the best, my question back is best for whom? Thank you very much, Diwan. Andre, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Um, in the US, less than 25% of the politicians in Congress are women. Uh, in Canada, our Prime Minister famously said that because it's 2015, when he was asked why he had assembled a cabinet that had an equal number of male and female ministers. There was some criticism about that cabinet, lack of diversity, uh, and also the files that some of the ministers were assigned to. But um, what role does political will play when it comes to creating a more inclusive society? Um, yeah, I think children see who is leading the country, right? So to the extent that we can create a, a leadership structure that reflects the diversity of the country, I think that's going to be an enormously influential um, factor in children um, growing up to aspire to be, uh, to be part of the leadership structure. So we can think about children and, um, and what they aspire to be when they grow up um, as um, in, in ways, you know, like the, we, we can take STEM as a, um, as a model, but apply it to leadership, for example, where um, children grow up um, absorbing some of the stereotypes that our culture holds about them, um, and they also absorb the stereotypes that our, their culture holds about um, whatever career it is that they were considering. So for example, when they think of politicians, they think of them as mostly male, they think of them as ambitious, they think of them as power-seeking. Um, to the extent that 
uh, girls in um, the US and in Canada grow up absorbing different sorts of values from the stereotypes that people hold about their groups, thinking of them as, uh, as altruistic and communal, um, then it's gonna be hard for them to see themselves as being suited for um, careers um, in, in politics. So to the extent that we can actually, for example, quotas have been enorm enormously influential in terms of not just immediately changing the composition of the, uh, of the government, but also in the long term, creating role models uh, for, for girls to use as sort of a psychological vaccine against the doubts that others might have about their abilities. And also, in the even longer term, shifting the stereotypes such that we no longer think of politicians as sort of on the template of the male politician who is power-seeking and will do anything to, um, uh, to stay, to grab power and stay in power, but rather um, on the template of the, you know, like the, the, the leader that's um, also keeping in mind the welfare of their people. But also for boys too, I read somewhere last year um, an article in the New York Times of how there was a lot of jobs in the health field in the US, but men weren't applying for those jobs because they considered those uh, traditional uh, female roles. So how do you change the, the, mind, uh, the minds of men that those roles are also for them? Yeah, so the, the problem of gender equity is, um, you know, it, it involves uh, um, everyone, right? So just working on boosting girls' aspirations to, you know, um, to go into STEM or, or politics is only going to solve part of the problem to the extent that um, we have jobs that are not being occupied because men feel that they're not suited because they don't have the nurturing skills, then that's obviously not going to get us anywhere. So I think similar, pro you know, men and women don't have different psychologies. It's, it's the same psychology. So to the extent that we um, encourage men, and maybe even with the system of quotas or something like that, um, to take up some of the um, more communal roles, um, then that can, via processes of this sort that I was describing um, shift the stereotypes and create a more welcoming environment for men in those, um, in those fields. The problem, however, is that um, a lot of communal roles also have lower status associated with them, right? So, so it's not just that we associate women with um, sort of communal roles, but also communal roles are seen as less than. They, they're what you do if you don't have any other options. So I think part of the ultimate solution to encouraging men to pursue um, more communal careers is gonna have to have a status component as well. Um, it's unclear to me at this point how exactly we do that, you know, like how we shift the conversation around these topics, but it's gonna be um, enormously crucial because um, otherwise men who are also socialized to be more um, status-seeking are not going to want to pursue jobs that are seen as lower status. And Christia, as we've seen the Me Too and Time's Up movement uh, gain momentum, we've seen this desire to talk about uh, toxic masculinity. Um, we're building up girls and we're telling them to be fearless and the future is female. Uh, what impact does that have, if any, on young boys? Well, I mean, I think that Partly, boys have just really been left out of the conversation. So I think that boys have been left out of emphasizing, really kind of what Andre's saying too, is that how can we emphasize for boys that being um, kind and compassionate and empathetic and helpful 
are just as valuable and important as being assertive and um, agentic. And so I think that the part is that girls have a hard time achieving equality on their own. Boys have to also meet them at that point. And so it's, it's kind of an impossible thing to claim equity on your own unless other people are also contributing. Because you know, then you're going to grow up and to be in these families where women are still doing twice the amount of family work that men are. And so it's hard to have equity in the workplace if you're then having to go home and do double duty there. And so for women, it's great to lean in and all of that. And we, you know, we do push those messages on girls. But I think what we really need to emphasize to boys is how do you lean into being helpful? How do you lean into supporting others and being empathetic and being a good ally um, and contributing to more communal goals? Because I think that for girls, you can be as um, fearless as you want. But then if you have to work really hard and then go home and raise children and then um, always be the one to volunteer for the <laughs> for the work group in addition to all of the other things. That's an unfair burden for half the population. And you mentioned that children police themselves. I have a seven-year-old, and in the hallway before he goes into his class, I'm always like giving him a hug, covering mm -hmm. him with kisses. And the minute he like pushes me away and he walks towards his class, his the composition of his body yes. changes. He stands up straighter. He like pushes his shoulders back. He has a slow swagger. It's like he's bracing himself yes. to start the day. Um, and we know uh, data shows us that uh, in schools, indigenous kids, black kids, black boys um, are in, are suspended more, are in detention more. And I guess this is where the conversation comes in with bias. Um, Juwan, is this something? Um, how is this something that? Like you said, everybody wants to be seen as being nice uh, and being friendly. How do you address bias in, uh, in the setting in, in, in education? Um, Especially for teachers. Yeah, and I think, you know, a couple of things uh, really quickly. Um, we have to have conversations about privilege. And often when people say that word, a lot of people put their backs up because they're like, well, what do you mean? I didn't have privilege. I worked hard for everything that I have. And, and, and often, it shuts down the conversation. Sometimes I don't really like that word privilege, because it doesn't actually mean that you, know, you didn't have to work hard. Which word do you like better? I, so I actually haven't figured that out yeah. yet. <laughs> but what I will say when I have the conversations about privilege um, is that it does not mean that you didn't have to work hard. Um, but it does mean that the system was set up to support you to move easier. And the way I explain it is that uh, um, I've heard this example used before. It's like you're walking and you have a tailwind that's w working with you versus you're walking and the wind's coming right at you. I, as a man, have male privilege. As somebody who's cisgendered, I have privilege. As somebody who's an English speaker, I have privilege. As somebody who was born here who's not indigenous with a Canadian passport, I have privilege. Naming those privileges does not make me a bad person. And I think part of the way that we have to have the conversations is ways that supports it so that people understand that when we talk about privilege, it is not about shame or blame or guilt. It is about acknowledging that when I'm making decisions as a cisgendered person on behalf of trans children, that there are things about the realities of trans-identifying children that I will never know or presume 
to be able to understand and I need to change who else is there. What it um, also uh, means is that, so for example, Me Too, because you brought up Me Too, part of the challenge with Me Too um, as it started growing was we started hearing from a lot of racialized women who were saying that their voices weren't actually being upheld in the Me Too movement. And so when we don't understand how our identities intersect and how sometimes we can unwittingly go the way while well, my voice is there, then we stop thinking about who, whose else's voices are missing to make sure that the story is complete. So in our system, for example, and I would argue that this is reflective not just provincially but nationally, indigenous children are in the gaps. Um, black children are in the gaps, in particular black boys, achievement gaps, well-being gaps, two-spirited LGBT identifying children, children with disabilities, children coming out of low SES. With the rise of white supremacy, we're seeing uh, the impact on more Muslim and Jewish children. Also, too, I'm thinking social um, class might play a role, too, Yeah, right? so low, low SES, low socioeconomic uh, status, households, working class, um, or impoverished, absolutely. The, when we looked at our, for example, suspensions and expulsions data, data black children make up 12% of our board, but they were represented by almost 50% of suspensions and expulsions. You can't tell me that you know, there are that many children who are black who figure into discipline issues if we're not addressing on one side beliefs and attitudes and two, systems and structures that uphold it. And that's why we have to address both simultaneously. We have to figure out what are the beliefs and attitudes that are happening. And so, as I said, in, in our organization, we've now uh, begun to use something called an inclusive design approach that puts identity right at the center of the conversation. And it begins with, who is it that we're serving? Who is it that's in the room with us? How is it that our lived experiences actually influences the decisions that we make? And who else do we need to have at the table? And when we can name who's in the gaps, we've changed now with equity as a leadership competency. Our focus, instead of you hiding the gaps, Good leadership is being able to name that the gap exists, being able to name who is in the gaps, even if we don't know what to do, because when we name it, we can do something about it because the expertise exists. And, and you know, there's a saying, nothing about us without us. We cannot presume to make, and, and, and a lot of financial institutions have begun to understand the financial promise of, of, of honoring that difference in, in experiences and in identities in how they approach things. And really, if you think about it, in a workplace situation, mm -hmm. if you can create an environment where the people who are there feel good about who they are, and they're not constantly navigating, um, are you here to fix the computer, or did you see what they blew up today, or all those kinds of conversations, Yep, you know, those people, they're always getting arrested. When they're not having to navigate those realities, guess what? Their productivity is going to go up. And I want to go back to the school setting. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes, and then we'll be taking questions from you. See, I told you it's going to fly by. Um, this is for Christia or Andre, whoever wants to take it. Uh, what role does bias play in how children are treated in a school setting? Um, I think it plays a huge role. Um, I think, again, the idea that it happens in 
on every marginalized identity. So we see it with kids that are immigrant, first and second generation immigrants, kids of color. Um, we see that bias is coming from teachers. We see bias is coming from peers. We see structural levels of bias so that, you know, in the US, kids of color um, are attending schools that are getting substantially less funding from um, government agencies than kids that are predominantly white. So I think at every single level, whether it be structural, whether it be the types of teachers that are wanting to teach in the schools that predominantly have kids of color, we see bias at that level. But we also see it from teachers. So even kids are perceiving it from teachers. So we have data for third and fourth grade, Latino immigrant kids are probably Mexican immigrant kids in the Midwest where I live. Um, we see even kids are recognizing that their teachers are biased and perceiving them to be less academically competent. Um, and then we also see it from peers. So it's not even at the level of microaggressions. We see pretty blatant forms of racial bias and ethnic bias and immigrant-focused bias. Um, and then that's not even talking about all of the gender um, implications that are here. And then the, the role of intersectionality, I think, is important. And so we see it by you know, elementary school. Kids are even recognizing it themselves. And so we make And I'm it thinking they probably start to police themselves on what they can and cannot do. Yeah, and so I think that's where, you know, an argument I make a lot when I talk to parent groups is that kids are often their own worst enemy. So mm -hmm. the problem is I think parents, you know, the idea of what can parents and teachers do is often they don't realize that kids are holding the levels of stereotypes and biases that they're holding and they don't realize that kids are enforcing these norms the same way. And so they're not talking to kids. So parents don't talk to their kids about gender stereotypes. Often they don't talk about race stereotypes with their kids because they think that if we talk about it, then kids will notice it for the first time. When really we know by the time kids are beginning elementary school or primary school, they're already aware of stereotypes, enforcing those um, restrictions among each other. And so we really have to explicitly talk about it and call it out and point it out when we see it so that kids have a schema or a language for what's a stereotype and what is bias as opposed to this is just the way things are meant to be. Thank you. Andre, do you want to add something? Yeah, and, and the other problem is that bias is really invisible. So parents don't see it in their kids and they don't also see it in, in themselves. And the same with teachers. So we know that, for example, if you, um, if you ask teachers, they, they say things like, oh yeah, girls can do as well as boys at math if they try hard enough. And, and they think that that's a totally fine thing to say, you know? Um, and you actually see that represented in, um, you know, like nationally representative um, studies of teachers where if you look at their ratings of boys and girls, uh, their ratings are similar. But because girls actually do better in school, they get better grades. And when you actually control for some of these confounding variables and you look at boys and girls that are as similar as you can make them, teachers actually way overestimate boys' abilities. They think that boys are innately smart. Um, and if they only applied themselves, they would do much better than the girls. And this is the kind of thing that is still um, sort of not considered um, as, as a bias, right? So when it's, it's hard to know even um, where to start if some of the things that are clearly biased aren't even perceived uh, as such. Uh, the, other, the other obstacle here is that when parents become aware of some of these biases, we also have all sorts of intuitions about what we can do to um, address them that are also off the mark, right? So um, you might say, oh, when you hear that people think that, let's say, boys are smarter than girls, you might think that going home to your girl and saying, you know, 
girls are just as smart as boys is a good thing to, to say to contradict that stereotype. But it turns out that language works in kind of complicated ways. And if you say boys are, uh, girls are just as smart as boys, you're still sending the, the message that boys are the reference point to which girls are, are compared. Right? Oh my gosh, I've done that <laughs> with my daughter. Yeah. So I can send you studies to make you feel worse about yourself. <laughs> That basically, when you tell kids that, they not only assume, even though on the surface you're saying that they're equal, that they assume that boys are better, but also that boys are naturally good, and girls have to try hard to be at the same level. So, for example, you tell them about, like, girls are as good as boys at freeching, and they have no idea what freeching is, and you ask them, who's better? Boys. And who's naturally good? Boys. Right? So... So that's another sort of layer of difficulty here, that we have these intuitions about the kinds of things we can do once we become aware of bias, which in and of itself is sort of a process. Um, Maybe just that acknowledging that we each have different, we've all lived different lives, so it's, we have different framing, and there's, and that's where the bias is. Exactly. Right. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, time for questions. Yeah. Uh, Oh, okay. Uh, I can actually see that. My eyes are so bad. Um, we have a question from Anonymous. How do we change patterns or behaviors for boys to support and encourage male allies? Who would like to take that? Thank like you I, for the question, whoever sent it. I feel like this captures a little bit what I was talking about. Um, so, I think part of it is that we have to be explicit that boys are the ones that really need to change. I think part of it is educate, I mean, part of the problem is boys are not aware, and again, this is a really heteronormative, cisgendered, straight boy um, schema and script, but really everyone is forced to follow along with this script. So, um, but part of it is helping boys recognize what is harmful behavior. So instead of saying, well, this is just boys being boys, which is what boys have really been taught almost all of their lives, many of them all of their lives, it is really helping them re understand the damage that some of these um, behaviors cause on others. So what happens when you call another boy a homophobic slur? So what happens when we're using homophobic language constantly in elementary, or in elementary and middle schools? What damage does that do on the people that are listening? What but do they even know what they're saying? The yes. boys don't? Um, they don't, so what's, Frustrating is they're using homophobic language. Um, they're using it as often general insults. It doesn't really seem to be related to sexual prejudice. So it's not as though they have biases against LGBT individuals, although they do. We have some new data that shows that. Um, but they're still using it as a really just kind of regular part of their language. And you don't see teachers really correcting it. Um, and so, but yet, if you're the kid who is a kid who's identifying as LGBTQ, and you're hearing that, mm -hmm. even if it's not directed at you, it really does enforce this norm that you're being othered, um, and that your identity is used as an insult for other people. And so part of it is having that, that conversation and questioning these behaviors that we've just long accepted as normative. Um, you know, because I'm just, even with my kids, um, sorry to keep bringing them up, it's just my reference point. Um, my son won't wear pink, and it's not because I've ever said anything's wrong with pink. He's like, it's a girl color. 
I'm like, what do you mean it's a girl color? And then I told him the history of the color pink, that it was originally a boy color. And he's just looking at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but if this stuff is starting in school, um, like early, like you're talking about what, five, six? That stuff starts around preschool. Mm -hmm. And if the teachers aren't addressing it, um, and some parents, maybe that's how they think, or you know, they have their prejudices. Um, how, do we, how do we address it? Like, how do we dismantle that? I don't have a good answer, but um, I, I think the strategy that you are adopting, I think, is on the right track. I think some of the most successful intervention programs to combat racism in schools have not just tried to convince kids that racism is a bad thing on sort of theoretical grounds, but have actually tried to give kids an understanding of the history of racism and where it comes from. I think it's often, oftentimes when you try to intervene and change behavior, people think that it's sufficient to just provide kids with a series of facts. You know, like you're trying to get them to not get colds or the flu and you're like, wash your hands. But they don't really understand, at least at a young age, why that is, right? In the same way, if you tell them racism is bad and other kids suffer when you call them racial slurs, you know, some will understand and some won't. But if you actually um, provide them with a, a conceptual framework to think about why some kids look different and behave differently than, than they might, uh, where these differences come from, that they're not sort of baked into our biology, but they're the product of a long history of discrimination and, and um, you know, like laws that codify some of these status differences. I think um, those sorts of interventions have proved to be most successful in producing long-lasting change in kids' behaviors because they have a conceptual understanding of why it is that they're observing the kinds of things that they hear. I mean, to ta tag onto that really quickly is I think also another thing is to help foster the actual friendships between boys and girls. The parallel with race, also the one thing that works with race bias is to encourage friendships across races um, because that helps you see other people as individuals and not as these stereotypes instead. And so I think partly what we allow in kids really early and we allow really throughout is for boys and girls to be really separate. So we, you know, we allow boys and girls to say, I don't want to play with them because um, you know, boys have the cooties or that kind of idea. Um, and so we allow segregation to occur. And so that, then what happens is when we want to come together again later, when puberty kicks in, we don't have a way in which we can relate to one another as humans and as individuals. Instead, we're just operating off these stereotypes. Um, and I think that's also a, a way in which we're fostering this difference. Um, it's a really easy way to encourage us coming together, and it's what we can learn really from the race, like the race intervention literature. Great, thank you. Um, let's see another question, please. Uh, can you speak, to, an, anonymous again, <laughs> can you speak to the growing evidence that is showing that diversity and inclusion training is actually causing increasing t intolerance and tribalism in people? Would like to take that. Well, so I, it, I will start with a caveat that I'm not an expert in this particular literature, but one of the things that I've noticed is that um, sort of the way, multi so multiculturalism is the currently sort of dominant and sort of state-of-the-art philosophy for um, thinking about diversity, that we, we should value difference, right? But oftentimes the way um, this philosophy is implemented in organizational settings just stops at that level, right? So it says we should, we, should, we should celebrate difference. And in fact, studies have shown, very recent studies, that when you just keep it at that level, 
that actually reinforces the idea that these differences come from a deep place, that we are deeply different uh, by virtue of um, you know, the racial groups that we, we are part of or the gender groups that we are part of. And therefore, you take this message that is um, inherently a positive one, we should value difference, and unintentionally what you do is you reify boundaries between categories. Um, and I think, you know, and I haven't done any research, but I'm, I'm sort of on this point, but I'm excited to go in that direction. I think the reason why some of these messages backfire in this way is, again, that we don't quite provide people with a conceptual understanding of why we are different in the first place, right? Because if you say, you know, like we all bring differences to the table and so on, and let's celebrate that, you leave people to interpret those differences as they will. And we know from a lot of research that people tend to interpret any group level differences in terms of the inherent attributes of people in that group. So then when you say we're all different, let's celebrate that, uh, for a significant portion of the people in your organization, what they'll hear is, you know, your genes are different from my genes, uh, that makes us behave in ways that are different, um, and therefore, um, I don't really need to interact with you. Sure, I can value your difference, but we don't need to be friends, and you're also stably the way you are, you're not gonna change because it's in your genes, and so on and so forth. So I think supplementing, one of the things that might help is to supplement uh, current messages and multiculturalism of valuing difference with a more sort of explanatory way that, that sort of might combat the naive tendencies of people to interpret difference in inherent terms. Could this be, could it go back to what you were saying, Jiwon, about uh, privilege? Because we've had a default for so long, uh, and maybe now there's a disruption happening that is making people uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> this is a, a longer conversation than a two-minute answer. So what I uh, probably would say is that um, Often when you think about how the, these strategies have been constructed, um, they haven't been constructed with people at the table at the beginning. It's been constructed by people who have the best solutions and then after the afterthought. And that's the whole piece about the, when I talk about how we end up objectifying groups of people. And the conversations aren't necessarily as straightforward. So yeah, we can talk about differences between, for example, boys and girls. And I would beg to differ that black and indigenous boys have a different experience when it comes to how their gender actually works for or against them. Not saying that within spaces that they, they enjoy male privilege, but race ends up playing a very different, because it's always operational. And so what ends up happening is when we talk about, for example, solutions, much like, yes, having boys and girls interacting more with each other, and again, I'm being mindful of the binary of the construction, um, if it's not done in ways that are culturally nuanced, then it becomes colonization all over again. So here I am, the successful person who knows everything, and I'm imposing on you what I know you need to do in order. And so we've seen it, for example, um, you know the difference uh, a piece of cloth can make. Talk to a Muslim woman who wears hijab or a sick man who wears a turban and notions of what will make them successful. In the case of Muslim women, how very well-intentioned 
uh, women in the liberation movement, women's lib movement, were trying to liberate Muslim women from their hijabs instead of accepting that as women, they could define themselves and their bodies and what they choose to show or not show from their place and their worldview. And so I often worry about these types of approaches um, because they often silence and erase people from the conversation, which is why we have to remember always no community is a monolith. So you can use any, any title, you know, uh, gender, race, sexual orientation, any of those things. You're not going to get an ambassador who can speak for everyone. We speak from our place of experience. So no community is a monolith. And if when we are coming up with the solutions, those people are not at the table, then I'm telling you to begin with, the conversation's flawed. And I'm saying this as the superintendent of anti-oppression, it doesn't matter what structures you have in place, they will be oppressive. Because though this has been my area of expertise and it's an area that I've devoted 20 years of my life, um, I started when I was five, in case you're wondering. <laughs> but for, for those of, uh, for um, any structure will end up oppressing some people because we don't have everyone's lived experiences. And that's why the stance is important because it, it brings us back to the work that we have to do on ourselves and critical questions we need to ask in order to interrupt things that become normative and then often situates people as the other. Um, I think we have one more question. Thank you very much. Um, what are your thoughts about hiring quotas to offset systemic bias? Does it help or hurt underrepresented groups? Um, I, I think it's in how it's done. We, we are an indigenous land. We, a lot of times we talk about all the things that are happening uh, in quote-unquote third world countries. We don't talk about the fact that the colonizing countries basically, basically uh, plundered the wealth and are now living off of it, leaving those countries in squalor. But right here, drive just an hour north of here to where there's indigenous people and the situations are horrific. We have duties according to truth and reconciliation, calls to action. Apart from that, if we want our organizations to be dynamic and to be vibrant and to actually attend to the needs of the changing demographics of this country and the world and to be globally competitive, I don't see how we have any choice other than to really do targeted hiring. That doesn't mean, right, because often the minute that you have these conversations, people are like, well, that leaves me out. I'm not saying, and this is not we're hiring people because of the bodies that they live in, but it is about troubling and problematizing the way we think and talk about expertise for the very reason we're still talking about gender today. Because many times expertise that women bring have been looked at as less than by virtue of the bodies that they're in and the way that society has taught us to view who they are. So if we're looking at improving what our organizations can do and how we can actually meet the needs of the people that we serve, we have to think about how we interrupt the dynamics that already exist. 
And that doesn't mean the people who are there are bad people. It doesn't mean that they don't bring expertise and a wealth of experience. It means that we're trying, just like if you identify a key skill in your organization that you need to be able to do better at, that's what I'm talking about, is how do we think about it in those ways and be able to bring in those varied experiences and identities to help us get to the next place. That was great, thank you so much. Andre, Christia, and Juan, thank you very much. I think we've run out of time. And thank you for the rest of our questions. Thanks for listening to another Gate Audio production podcast. To continue these conversations, Gate will collaborate with Rotman's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab to host a new conference called Gender Analytics Possibilities, or the GAP Conference, on April 27, 2023. At the GAP Conference, you'll join more than 25 speakers and hundreds of participants to explore how to use inclusive analytics to generate innovative products, services, and policies. We'll be talking about topics such as decolonizing data and design, inclusive product and service design, new trends in financial services, creating inclusive contracts and legal practice, and revolutionizing sports analytics. Check out thegapconference.com for more information. That's thegapconference.com. Stay tuned for more Gate Audio episodes.